Hello, I'm Lauren McCormack and I'm a hairstylist and makeup artist living in London. Hello, you're listening to The Five Rooms Podcast. Lauren McCormack is a makeup artist and hairstylist living in London. After a career in TV production, Lauren made the executive decision to retrain in the personal passion of hers to become a full-time hair and makeup artist. Starting her makeup career in fashion and beauty, Lauren has assisted leading artists for publications including US Vogue, Glamour and Porter magazine. Her own portfolio includes work for brands such as Ted Baker, Matches Fashion and LK Bennett. Outside of fashion and editorial work, Lauren provides hair and makeup styling for pundits and presenters across a variety of sports broadcasting and, in 2019, was part of the ITV sport team that brought coverage of the memorable Rugby World Cup in Japan. Our discussion covers Lauren's work across broadcast, editorial and bridal hair and makeup, as well as what it's really like to powder the broken noses of rugby legends. Thank you so much for joining me on Five Rooms today. How are you doing? I'm very well, Ollie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really chuffed. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Okay, so as always, we start with room one, early life. So let's try and create a space that represents your formative years. Talk me through how this room looks to you. Okay, uh, I've given this quite a bit of thought, actually. It's a, it's a really interesting question, sort of trying to look back on your on your early years. And at 33, they seem they seem a long way ago now. Um, <laughs> but when I, when I sort of imagine growing up, because I... I was in the same house from sort of three years old until when I moved to London at 22, 23. So it's um, sort of a place of real comfort. So for me, that room includes a really nice sort of big round table um, covered in food. My parents were real sort of like foodies and we would always sit down as a family, my brother, myself, my mum and dad and have dinner at the end of the day um, at the weekends. I, I don't think growing up I ever took dinner and, or lunch or anything I ate in my bedroom. It was always a real sort of like family place and sort of friends popping in and out. So that big table is quite sort of symbolic in a way of coming together and chatting and catching up and, and communicating. So that would be that would be the sort of centerpiece of the room. My mum and dad were really always really interested in in art. Um, So there was always really sort of cool pictures on the walls that that would change over the years. And one of those that really stands out to me and and maybe sort of one of the influences maybe of sort of taking a sort of artistic career was um, a picture that they bought back from a trip to the States. They went to New York for my dad's 40th. So I was maybe 10, 12 years old, 10, 11, 12 and it was a, a poster print of a of a sketch that an artist had done. I think the original was something like 20 feet high, but it was a sketch of the New York skyline. And it had taken the guy, I think, four years to make. The artist was called Krico Obot. And um, he'd used sort of two and a half thousand pencils. But they bought this print back and had it framed and put in the lounge. And it was just, it was such a, a talking piece for anyone that came round. And they had, they had a little post-it note sort of behind it with facts that they, they had about the picture of the original size and, and how how long it took to create and I just remember being fascinated by this picture and how anyone had dedicated this amount of time to creating it and it was that sort of time we were doing art at school that I really started to play around with with pictures and and things like that um so definitely a, a big room with with lots of pictures and interesting sort of paintings and things on the wall as well 
Fantastic. We've got so much stuff on the walls here. What I'll do, I'll um, share, see if I can find that print and, uh, or maybe if you have, uh, do you have a, yeah, uh, yeah, I can. I actually had to double check the artist's name, so I will. I will send the link to you so that you've got it because it is quite something, and you. It really does look like a photograph. You have to go in quite close to, and you can kind of see that it's pencils. But it's 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 mind blowing to think how how long this took to create. Well, fantastic. We'll definitely share that on the blog post accompanying this. We've spoken about all the art on the walls. What are we hearing? Is this a big, loud kind of family? Is everyone kind of talking over each other? <laughs> Tell me about some of the atmosphere. Yeah, it's it always, I mean, I've got really happy memories of childhood. My dad was a police officer and a detective most of my upbringing. So he was sometimes home quite late. So we might eat quite late. And, you know, depending on, on what he'd had to deal with at work, that might sometimes affect the sort of mood at the table. But generally, sort of really sort of like happy and chatty. My brother and I got on really well. It was, there was always music playing. Um, it might have been. And, you know, my dad, my dad's music was sort of like Stevie Wonder or Bowie or my mum loved George Michael and you too. So it was a real sort of mishmash of stuff. Not always that cool, like I might add. There's a lot of Lighthouse family going on. <laughs> well, this, this is the 90s we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's that's pretty good credentials. That's a good soundtrack to this room yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely a good soundtrack. Definitely a good soundtrack. I put a little note on my pad that there was a dog in the corner. My mum's actually from the States originally, and her parents moved back to Florida because they'd moved over here when she was about 12. And um, they had a Siberian Husky, so they couldn't take him back to Florida. So we got him when he was about seven years old when they moved back. And later in life, when he passed away, we got a, a Schnauzer. So there was always a dog in the room. There was always a dog around, which was just... Like, I'm such an animal lover, so got this amazing way, haven't they? Dogs are just sort of cutting through any kind of family tension or sort of atmosphere. They're just such a lovely presence to have around. So there's always a little corner with a little dog in it, in my mind. Absolutely. There's nothing. Okay, schnauzers are a little bit of a different height. I grew up with Labradors, so very often around the dinner table, you would just suddenly be aware of the presence of a dog as the dog <laughs> head suddenly finds its way to your knee. And oh we, we God, were good. Yeah. We didn't feed the dogs at the table, but still, there is nothing quite like the warmth that you suddenly feel when you're aware that a dog is present and uh, wanting to express some love, even though it may be covered love. Oh, we definitely made the mistake of feeding the dog at the table and oh, it I stuck. See. I mean, he was such a scrounger, Hugo the Schnauzer, but Rebel the Husky, he we would give him like an empty, almost empty yogurt pot and he'd just get his full like schnout stuck in it, sort of whilst he was trying to get the residue out and just sort of batting this thing around. So it became something that we all thought was quite funny. So that may be our fault for encouraging them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think you painted a really warm feeling room here you know there's a great sense of the family community and family being at the center of your of your upbringing and uh, the balance across the table as well do you think having that picture of new york on the wall did that make you want to kind of see the world a little bit as your mum is american as well you know you've you've kind of got that seed planted in you yeah definitely oh my gosh definitely my mum was um, my mum was so lucky and she'll say this she she grew up her dad was um from australia originally moved to the states in sort of i think his late teenage years and became an editor for reuters so he he got to travel the world quite extensively and when she met my dad he hadn't done as much traveling so i think one of the things he fell in love with her was sort of this sort of desire to be adventurous and explore it was always part of the discussion travel and adventure and and I think definitely having the pictures in the background to sort of to illustrate that definitely made me want to explore my, my grandma my so my mum's mum was born and raised in New York so New York's always had a real sort of like place in my heart to sort of visit and I first went there with my mum when I was 16 and just fell in love with the place so definitely has a, a real sort of charm the sort of the glamour and the soul of the city 
And with your dad as a policeman as well, was he sort of classic policeman? Was he very strict or, or did, <laughs> did you get away with murder? <laughs> no, he was very strict, very, very strict. Not so much restricting freedom or anything like that. He was he was very good about encouraging independence. And, and then because I had a brother, he was really amazing at raising us equally. I never sort of felt like I was never made to feel like the princess or anything like that. It was, we were both sort of allowed to express interest in the same thing or different things. Um, So he'd take me to the football as much as he would Lewis. But I think he would definitely drum a sort of few horror stories into us just to to kind of like, drugs are bad, stay away. You know, this could be what happens. And, you know, I think in that career, you do see certain things. And of course, you'd want to protect your children and do what you can to put them off and steer them on the right path. What football team are we talking about here? Uh, he's a Liverpool fan. <laughs> okay, so that's great. It must have been yeah. good fun going to see football matches with your dad and your brother. Was your mum there as well or was this Definitely. just the three of you? Um, no, he, I mean, it tended to actually be like one or the other of us because um, Liverpool obviously quite a trip away. So it would be like he'd take Lewis one time and then I'd get to go the next time. Or if he got tickets to any London clubs, it was, it was usually you could only get a pair of tickets rather than, you know, they're quite hard to come by, aren't they? Sort of like major Premier League tickets. So it used to be like one or the other of us. But more recently, we have we have been to a few games as a family of four, actually. I think we went to see Liverpool Villa in a cup semi-final a few years ago and they didn't win but um, it's definitely something we've enjoyed as a family and and Lewis used to play quite a bit so it was always you know like Sunday football mum and her mates washing the kits after and me and the dog on the sidelines watching so definitely a sort of big part of growing up. I think let's move on from room one now but I think we're gonna have the dining table in the middle I like the idea of the family dynamic everyone sitting around and talking we're gonna put this New York picture on the wall but I think maybe in the corner just before we exit into room two we can have a Liverpool kit hanging up. (laughs) just on a hanger just just a little note that this is part of the family Michael Owen's name blazoned on the back oh my gosh yeah that was that was the the first crush okay with Owen on the back (laughs) okay so let's move on to the uh, the second room where we're going to talk about influences in the center of this space we're going to display one key influence in your life so what are we going to place in this room oh this is a really tricky one does it have to be a physical thing or can it be a person it can be whatever you want that's the beauty of it can I pick a couple? Oh, have to be one. Do you know what? Okay, let's hear your uh, your proposal, and then we'll work it out from there. Because obviously, I became a makeup artist quite late. You know, it's in my mid twenties, so I feel like there's sort of influences that took me to that point, and then influences that actually got me into sort of an artistic. But I, I think if I had to pick one, I suppose my, my dad took me to the David Bailey Stardust exhibit. This is, I think maybe 2013, 2014 at the National Gallery, and I just trained as a makeup artist, and I'd done a sort of five week part time course because I was already working full time, um, and I worked for a production company based at Ealing Studios. And the school grease paint was was round the corner so I could go in the weekdays and my lovely boss Helena, she used to let me come in in the evenings to catch up on what I'd missed so I didn't have to take too much time off. But after I'd trained, I didn't really know what I was doing. I knew that I enjoyed the course and I loved the idea of being creative and I knew that was definitely a route that I wanted to go down and I maybe made some mistakes and chosen a sort of a wrong career route for me. But shortly after completing this this course we went to this David Bailey Stardust exhibit and you know I knew of David Bailey and liked his work and I think there was even a film that a TV film they made called We'll Take Manhattan where him and Dream Gene Shrimpton go off to the States and New York and take photos for Vogue but the exhibit it just I mean, it's just mind-blowing if you like fashion photography and and the stories that it tells you just you just walk around and every picture you can just you sort of making up your own 
ideas of what the the subject's thinking or what's happened, what they've discussed to get to this point. And, and I just remember thinking, I want to be a part of making these pictures happen. And I think that's when I knew that I wanted to go down the sort of fashion creative route over maybe sort of film or TV or any of the others. I have actually been to this exhibition as well. This is the one at the National Portrait Gallery. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, this this really blew me away. I've, I've always been a fan of his work, but I think what is so good about seeing his work in that context is that you get to appreciate it at scale. Because so often when we see images, even in magazines, you're kind of restricted on the scale. But actually when you blow up an image of, of that magnitude, when you're really staring into somebody's eyes, and so often David Bailey's work, you're, you're really looking down the barrel of the camera, you're really capturing something. And you're capturing people who are so iconic as well. It's such a, yeah, that, that exhibition completely blew me away as well. So I'm very much in favour of you, <laughs> including David David Bailey in this. I've seen it, yeah. And you're so right as well with the size and the fact that you're in a room and there's no other distractions and it's just, you know, it's just you and that picture or pictures. Um, and like you say, the size of it sort of um, just ch- does change the way you look at it. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah, and actually that is my probably my favourite coffee table book as well. I have a bad habit of spending far too much money on postcards and uh, <laughs> exhibition books. And uh, yeah, that, that book is fantastic. My dad got a, a selection, I think it was like nine portraits. And there's, I think there's an amazing one of like Jack Nicholson laughing and one of Beyonce and one of Mick Jagger. And he's got, there's about nine of them and he's put in a sort of like a collage frame on his wall. But yeah, I mean, his pictures are just, just, every, just fabulous. And the way he kind of changed fashion photography in the 60s and made it so sort of sexy and playful and just brought everything to life he's you know if I had to list one sort of key influence to go down that route it would be him and his pictures and also what kind of amazes me about his stuff as well you just think over the period of obviously he's been shooting since the 60s but he's he's just photographed everyone and everyone that he's photographed has had such an important impact on culture so he's been the one who's been capturing all of those key influential people in contemporary culture. And it's amazing seeing his interpretation. You know, they they become iconic in their own right. There's also one thing that really stayed with me from that exhibition was there was a series of photography that he did whilst his wife was pregnant. And there was some pictures of the birth of uh, one of his children. And it was such a, to go from the kind of the glitz and glamour to suddenly have that massive change into something which is a very intimate moment. It's it's amazing how it suddenly just changes on a dime and it's just, you have a completely different kind of sensibility. And then you kind of go back to all the fantastic sort of celebrities, I guess. Yeah, but it just shows you how talented he is that he can flip from one to the other and still sort of capture that character and everything that brings it to life, depend, you know, even something as vastly different as that. Is there one portrait from that exhibition which you which kind of burned into your soul a little bit. You you say you kind of took the whole thing in and it just really blew you away. Is there one that really grabbed you? There's one he did of of Jean Shrimpton right at the beginning and she's kind of, it's a black and white and she's kind of turning and she's got one arm up and the other sort of behind her in like triangular shapes and it's just stunning, absolutely stunning, the makeup, the lighting and she just had that sparkle in her eye. Just, and I think that's that kind of, that 60s style is is him, isn't it? It's, that's, that's his, that's his trademark and, think that's one of the that was one of my favorites fantastic so how are we going to represent this do you know what i think we can the little tickets <laughs> oh do you know what let's have the tickets we're we'll going to put the tickets on the plinth i, I think, think I've got actually in my little memory box oh there we go perfect <laughs> well i think around the room we can definitely get away with putting some of these uh these full-size prints around the room as well and we're gonna have the tickets that represent 
the moment and that time that you spent with your dad going around. But I think we've definitely got enough wall space where we can put a few up. Okay, thank you. Moving on to room three, tools. In this room, we're going to boil down what essential items you need to be a hair and makeup artist. So I'd imagine you have quite an array of different products in your arsenal, but talk me through your essential setup. Essential setup. Um, what you cannot, any makeup artist worth their salt will tell you this, that you cannot create a good makeup without a great set of brushes and a great uh, a few great skincare products everything else comes after you could probably do an amazing makeup with just three or sort of four basic makeup products after that but if you haven't got good brushes and you haven't got in fact you know what you, you could even do it with your hands if you were pushed but skincare products and, and brushes would be sort of the first thing that I would invest in and, and advise any other up-and-coming makeup artists to to get and research and practice with let's talk about the environment as well in which you're working now i'd imagine you're spending a lot of your time behind the scenes you're you're backstage how important is it to have a comfortable space in which you're working you know to have a comfortable chair for the person you're applying makeup to to have the mirror the lighting everything together tell me tell me about that sort of space in which you're working I'm grinning your ear because it's so funny because it's, it's such a novelty to have and all makeup artists will understand this. It's such a novelty to have a lovely desk with perfect lighting and room to set up. It just happens like maybe 5% of the time. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it is important and it's great when it happens, but usually you kind of have to work around what you've got. So when I do say, for, for instance, I do a lot of work with um, with ITV Sport and when we're on the horse racing, a lot of the time, if we can't, if we don't have access to the studio, we have to sort of sort of find a space and it might be at the podium where the presenters are about to present and I'll lay a quick towel down or at least I would pre-COVID this this is all going to have to change now but would lay a quick towel down with you know the brushes and the products I was going to use and pat 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 and just hope that it wasn't raining but then other other productions I've been lucky enough to be a part of there has been a, a designated room with a lovely big desk and beautiful you know like those the bulb mirrors and everything that you would need and and it I don't know it definitely does make a difference because psychologically you've gone into it prepared everything's laid out but I'm not sure that the finished result is ever too different I think you make it work you make the environment work and when you're on a show say for example you're doing fashion week London Milan or wherever it is and and that changes from from time to time sometimes you have a really nice amount of space and sometimes you get about a foot by a foot of space and, and someone's bashing into you the whole time and everyone's trying to work and it's and it's chaos but you get the job done you know everybody has the same goal and 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 you, and you just make it work i think that's good adaptability i'm sure is is crucial in music. that's the word yeah <laughs> so in terms of when you're building up your collection of products to to work with do you need premium brands to create that look do you have to pay the money it's funny because when you start out you have no products and no money and you have to buy it all but when you start to become sort of more established and you're getting call-ins for stuff so say if I had a a front cover published I could call into a PR company and say I'm going to you know use your products would you be able to send me some as a sort of trade and you get sent it for free and obviously when you get to mega level you just get sent it all the time so the sort of more money you're making and the more your name is the more free stuff you get but when you're actually starting out you you have to pay for it all it's it's important to a degree but it also depends who you're working with I think some of the the models you might get with perfect skin you might not need as as many products because they don't require as much coverage or they're very lucky and they haven't got certain skin conditions whereas if I was doing a wedding and say for example I had a mother of the bride who's and this you know this happens 
who's got rosacea and you have to be able to say well I've got products that can can deal with this but also aren't going to aggravate your skin so you do have to have a, a real range depending on what work you're going to do so I think research is key finding products that are, are going to be multi-use that you can use on the body on the face that double up as a bit of shine on the cheeks or the lips or also going to condition things like that where you can really sort of save some money but they are important and if you're going to go into the world where you're doing red carpet then I think yeah I think people automatically maybe trust you more if you've got some high-end products that they can identify straight away and it must be difficult starting out and like you say you you didn't start your career in this way you you came into a slightly different mm-hmm. route and it's it's quite a big investment to begin with I yeah. guess if you want to make sure that you have the right product completely I think I was um I went back to my job in tv production after I'd done my training and I think I was there almost two years just doing any sort of jobs I could get on the weekend weddings shows whatever sometimes I'd take annual leave if something came up and just using that money to to buy and build up my kit and any anytime I would assist an artist so for anyone that doesn't know assisting is when you might work with a sort of big agency represented artist and you go along and you help them sort of handing them brushes and helping them get the job done sort of more efficiently and I'd be you know watching everything that they had in the kit and it gives you a chance to sort of go okay well I've seen that product in in 10 people's kits so that must be one worth buying and I've seen this one in a few people's kits and that's one one worth getting as well so that's a really good way when you're starting out to to find the products that are already been tried and tested. But yeah, it took me about two years, I think, before I felt confident enough and that I had enough of the products to launch as an independent makeup artist. How do you trial the products? Are you you kind of doing tests on yourself? Do you have willing volunteers or maybe unwilling volunteers (laughs) around you? No, I think I think think most things on the on the market are on the market because they they work and they're decent. And and you kind of know if it's you know skincare stuff, you you might pay a little bit more because you you really get what you pay for sometimes with skincare. But if you're going to be doing an editorial and you're only going to be shooting the model for 10 minutes, it doesn't matter if it's high-end glitter or eyeshadow or whatever it is that you're using because it's not got to last the day if you're doing a wedding or a tv or a film and it's got to last a few hours you might want to invest a bit more so I think it's a bit of a judgment call with looking at what work you've got coming up and what where you want to go with it and what you're willing to spend the money on and just sort of gauging it and it's your kit your kit your product your tools they're going to change over the course of your career my kit and my the way I set up my bag has changed about six times in the last five years and I think that's every make it will just continue to do that it's just part of the job you sort of evolve and there's always new products coming out and ways of packaging them and decanting everything really because this stuff all starts to weigh a lot as well <laughs> I am um, I, I packed my bag the other day um for a job and it was hair and makeup and obviously it's got all the PPE in it now so I've got bottles of alcohol and bleach and sanitizer and and things and I couldn't physically lift it so um John had to carry it down the stairs for me and help me put it in the the car. <laughs> so you have to take that into account as well you know what can I afford to lose what can I afford to scrape out and put in a smaller pot so it's a whole it's a whole sort of learning curve and I don't think that'll ever stop yeah I can imagine but that's good it shows evolution and it shows that not you can't use the same tools for every job there's probably a few essential things which which have a bit more flexibility but actually it's important for people to think about well, actually, I do want to go more down the broadcast route, which means I need this set. Or maybe I do want to focus more on, on bridal makeup, which has yeah, to have that longevity. It, it makes you, you know, you keep your eye on the ball and, it, you know, you, you're never complacent because you know you've constantly got to be thinking and adapting and changing. So it, it really helps you in, in, in that respect, I think. Okay, 
let's move on to the fourth room where we're going to look at your work. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier that you used to work in TV production yes. and then you made the switch over from TV production to makeup artist. Yes. Tell, me, tell me about that transition and what were the triggers for that? As I mentioned before, in the sort of two years between training and going out on my own, I was um, I carried on working and there was maybe sort of a, a something that happened at work that I sort of had to deal with and my boss at the time was on maternity leave and it wasn't particularly pleasant and like, I was just dreading going to work each day. So that, so that was maybe one of the factors. I just wasn't enjoying enjoying it as much anymore and I went and did my friend Nicola's wedding and she got married down in Cornwall and I did the wedding on the Saturday I did her hair and makeup and handed my notice in on the Monday when I got back to work just sat down at my desk and without even thinking about it wrote my resignation and sent it to my dad and said you know I'm thinking about doing this what do you think you know I I do I do run a lot of things by him he's he's a really good sounding board and my mum is you know amazing she's always supportive but my dad's got quite a good analytical approach and have you thought about this and have you thought about that so I emailed it to him and he said you know what if you want to do it just go for it so it was it was a complete overnight change really I gave them three months notice so that took me right up until the end of the year and um, they were really kind they said you know do you want to maybe do sort of part-time um you know do a couple of days a week no no gonna go straight into it like (laughs) gung-ho in retrospect (laughs) probably should have taken the part-time option because I don't think anything can prepare you for that first oh it's end of January oh don't have a payslip this month okay that's a big adjustment and that took a while to get used to because I did have a decent salary and I was comfortable but the the other big turning point was um, my friend Ollie who was a TV presenter at the channel and he just got a role as presenter with ITV Racing they'd got the contract for the horse racing on terrestrial for the next four years and I was I was back at the old job doing some sort of I think holiday cover and he came in and said oh would you like me to put your name forward said that would be amazing you know but I don't you know don't expect anything please don't do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable and I got an email from their production manager a week later saying Ollie's you know put your name forward and they said we have a girl she's going to be doing the Six Nations in February would you like to cover some of her shifts and I said yep that'd be great so I had sort of five or six shifts booked in and then on New Year's Eve that the end of that first year of being freelance I got a phone call from them saying you know she's had some sort of changes to her personal situation and can you come down tonight to Cheltenham to do our first broadcast on January 1st and I did and drove down and it went well and they called later that week and said can we book you in for the rest of the year and that was a complete changing moment for me because that allowed me to actually stay in the job because it was regular work. I was going to be able to look at the year and know that my rent was paid and almost build a team that were like colleagues, even though you're freelance. And that kind of changed everything. And I'm just so grateful to Ollie for putting me forward and, and for the team for sort of letting me work with them because it, it did sort of change everything. Well, I think you're very brave for actually making that step to move away from your job and to, to just to take that leap of faith, because I think a lot of people have those aspirations to do that, but it takes some guts to actually go, nope, I'm actually going to do this with both feet, jump and just see where you end up. But also amazing that those little gestures that people that we know make and that have an impact on our lives, it kind of sets you on a different course. And it may not be that much to that one person, but for you, it really changed the course. So it's it's fantastic when all this comes together. Definitely, definitely. I mean it's it definitely takes a little bit of bottle, but my husband John was just as soon as I did the course, he he bought me, you know, books about makeup art and, you know, he was so supportive. And he had had a similar situation actually where he'd sort of changed his career later later in his life and and gone into sort of production and broadcast and was editing and teaching himself to edit and being creative. And that was one of the things that sort of 
it did inspire me in in the way that I wanted to have what he had I wanted to really love my job and um he was so so supportive and I think I don't know if I would have done it without his support. Well, that's great to hear. <laughs> Let, let's talk about broadcast. Yeah. Beyond fulfilling, obviously, the professional duty, there is a there's a practical reason you need to make people look good for TV. Um, but beyond that, how would you describe your relationships with the camera-facing talent? Do you find yourself fulfilling roles beyond being a makeup artist? Are you a friend? Are you a therapist? <laughs> I think you can be all of those things. When you're doing someone's makeup and their hair, you're, you're getting closer to them than probably most people in their lives, apart from their partners and their children and, you know, family. You're within five minutes of meeting someone, you've got your hands on their face. So I think that that breaks a barrier immediately. And I think part of being a good makeup artist is obviously this, the technical skill and being able to do the work, but also being able to um, judge a situation in a person and be able to tell when they're happy to have a chat and when they're not and how much to sort of ask of them. And I think that's what makes it work. And, and that's what makes you work well with talent because you're in a position of trust and, and sometimes you get told things that you, you can't repeat. And, and sometimes, you know, just being able to, to keep that trust with them and knowing, knowing what they like in terms of their appearance and what they like to look like. I've got a, a lady that I work with quite a bit and, just you know being able to remember this is exactly like how she likes her hair prepped and this is exactly how she likes and she doesn't you know there's certain things that she doesn't want me to use and just being able to try and remember that and just be respectful of of boundaries I think is is what's really important like you say the intimacy is what really strikes me about your role you're working so closely with people and you're getting that unique perspective on them you know really as you say laying your hands on someone's face in a way that they probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have done yeah, by anyone I mean, else so. you go up to someone and just sort of grab them by the face and I, have to, I, I can face. tell you not very often just to, <laughs> to reassure anyone who listens. i mean and obviously in a covid world now that sort of that doesn't happen that's anymore. definitely a no-no yeah <laughs> So as part of your broadcast work, you had the rather enviable opportunity to travel to Japan with ITV Sport for the yeah. 2019 Rugby World Cup. <laughs> How was it powdering all those broken noses? <laughs> that was, uh, oh my gosh, uh, I just grin when I talk about the Rugby World Cup. I remember getting the email asking me to do the job. I was on a dog walk with my dad and and we sat down and I got this email and I was reading it and I was like, you know, when something just doesn't sink in, you're like, I think. I think they've just asked me to cover the Rugby World Cup and they've asked me to be the, the sort of sole lead and would I like to do everything? And it's three weeks in Maidstone covering the sort of group stages and then we go out to Japan. And I was like, I almost, I think I actually said to my dad, I'm not sure if I want to do that, you know. And he was like, are you crazy? He was like, what on earth are you thinking? And I was in my head, I was like, oh, would it take me away too much from fashion? Because so much of my my weeks, a lot of fashion work comes in so last minute. So I keep my weeks quite free for anything that that comes in. And a lot of my TV work is weekend. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's sort of six weeks out from that. And am I going to miss some sort of opportunity? And he was like, for goodness sake, this is once in a lifetime. Obviously, it's up to you, but I can't believe you're even considering this. It was absolutely brilliant. The team was amazing. The, the work that went into it was just mind blowing. It was, you know, but they had crew out in japan about a year before i think the actual broadcast helping set things up the, the powdering the, the powdering the broken noses i mean this it was fine they were great i mean you're working with sort of top athletes and they're getting ready they've got a job to do as well so they're thinking about what they want to what points they want to cover and 
trying to sometimes watch the match whilst it's going on. So I'd, I'd have the, the laptop set up in the makeup room so that they could keep an eye on the game should they want to. One of the funny things that happened after the one of the first broadcasts, um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but like, Lawrence Delalio came back in and we'd only sort of, we'd only met maybe once or twice before. And he came and he said, uh, we've got a problem. I said, oh my gosh, what have I done? I put something on his skin that's made him react. He's, uh, you know, and I was sort of dreading what he was about to say next. And he said, I've pushed my earpiece so far into my ear and it's stuck. And I said, okay, um, okay, has the sound man gone? And I don't know why I thought it was the sound man's responsibility. I was just, you know, this is an earpiece. He is a sound man. He should do this. Um but he's like, no, 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 no. I'll sit in the chair and, and just have a, you know, have a little play. So he sat down in the chair and I sort of tilted his head and um, sort of got a cotton bud. I was trying to think of something that was sort of gentle enough that should I pod too hard, it's not going to, it's not going to cause any damage. And because of the texture of the earpiece, it's almost like rubber. Every time I pushed, it was just pushing it further and further into his ear. I was at the point I think we're going to have to send him to hospital. There's no way this is coming out. And um, and one of the other presenters was behind me, sort of giggling away and saying, "Ha ha, you'll never." Get guess what she had to do at work today and I was like just trying so hard to stay calm the last thing any makeup artist wants to do is hurt someone or sort of be the reason that they've had to make a trip to A&E that is not going to sit well so I was like right deep breath one more go and just sort of push this cotton bud so far against the side of his ear that I managed to slip it behind and sort of push it out from from the back and out it came and that was that (laughs) oh there we go and that's that's a great skill to have learnt as well. That if that happens again, I'm like, you know. guys, step aside. I've got this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that was yeah, not the broken noses so much as as the ear problem. But um, yeah, no, that was a good that was a good day. <laughs> you mentioned Lawrence Delalio. You encountered some real legends of the sport. You had people like Johnny Wilkinson and Brian O'Driscoll and Brian Habana. Did you ever get starstruck when you were out there? I mean, I was I was raised on football, so um, I wasn't so much of a, a rugby fan. But obviously, you know who these people are, and I remember watching the the England final when the when they won the rugby. I can't even remember which year it is now. Which is oh, in two thousand three. Two thousand three, yeah. good boy. <laughs> and I remember my I remember my dad like picking me up and spinning me around the room and just being like so thrilled that they'd won. And Johnny and um, Johnny actually went to school not far from where I grew up and the school I went to in Camberley. So he was kind of a bit of a local hero anyway. So the first time I met him, I think I was I was quite starstruck. But he was utterly charming and, and really happy to sort of have a chat and yeah, a really nice experience. So did you have much of a chance to explore Japan? Um, yeah, we did. So we flew out, I think it was sort of mid-October, and we landed and had a day, and then we flew to the South Island to cover the first, I think it was the first stage of the quarterfinals in a place called Oita. That was quite sort of full on. It was sort of two days in and out. And then, but then when we got back, we sort of didn't have to do, well, I didn't have to do anything till the following weekend. Obviously there were other people that did have more pressing jobs, but I was kind of sort of <laughs> felt like a bit of a steal. Um, so a couple of us would go out and explore, um, or explore Tokyo. So got to see quite a bit, but there was a couple of, a couple of occasions where um, myself and the, the floor manager Jonesy were thinking of getting a bullet train and going to some different parts, but because England had done so well, they, they did some extra filming and we kind of needed to be sort of near the hotel so didn't get to stray too far from Tokyo although we did get taken on a sort of big group day out as a crew which was which was fabulous out to Mount Fuji and did a sort of a boat across the lake to see it and everything which was great but it's it's the most brilliant place to go and I would recommend anyone to go there so John and I are hopefully going to go back in a couple of years and um, and sort of do a bit more exploring. I was looking at your Instagram earlier, just looking at some of the work that you've done, and you posted from Japan. 
And you mentioned them in this one post that you covered 48 matches, you traveled <laughs> 10,000 miles, and you did 250 faces of makeup. I mean, yeah. it's it's pretty extraordinary stats when you think about it like that. It's, it sounds really geeky, but I wanted, to, I wanted to sort of just summarize the sort of job because I knew how lucky I was to be the, the lead makeup artist and the only makeup artist working on this. And um, I'd done every match. So in, in Maidstone, there might be sort of four matches the day and, and with other crew that maybe had sort of like heavy cameras and stuff to operate quite understandably there was splitting the shifts but because my you know I've got quite a bit of downtime when the actual match is going on um, until they're back in vision um, I was able to cover everything quite comfortably so I'd, I'd covered every single match and I'd kept a little sort of like just a loose note and I'd kind of worked it out that it was roughly this many this many faces but I thought the, the little stats just sort of helped me sort of just celebrate what an amazing experience it was and um, yeah that that day getting to be sort of pitch side on on the final um, and obviously the result for England didn't quite come in, but I don't know if I'll ever get to, to work on anything like that again. And and if I do, I'll count myself very lucky. You mentioned that you're from a football family. Have you ever worked in football coverage at all? It's funny you should ask that because I'm, I'm covering my first football programme for ITV Sport next weekend. It's England International. I want to say they're playing Iceland. I need to double check in, in a cup competition. So it's a highlight show. Um, so it's um, a presenter and two pundits. So that'll be my my first experience. Neither of the pundits are Liverpool, former Liverpool players, though. So I might have to keep my, uh, keep my loyalties to yeah. myself. <laughs> 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 so neither of them are Michael Owen then so what you're but saying Michael Owen's a big um racehorse owner and trainer so I have actually had the chance to work with him um I did his makeup for the racing at Chester a couple of years ago and um I, I kept my cool a little bit but I did have to I did have to confess that I was fan number one and <laughs> his posters were on my wall pictures everything and I, I, yeah he was lovely very very sweet Stephen Gerrard's the next one to tick off because he was also a big hero but I haven't had the chance to to, to do his makeup yet okay well there's still time I'm sure we can sort something out <laughs> we're, we're not we're not hugely influential yet on this podcast but you never know who's listening <laughs> we'll keep our fingers crossed Lionel Messi yeah if you're listening yeah come and have your makeup done Okay, we'll do the full shopping list of, uh, of footballers. <laughs> now, it's interesting hearing about the work that you've been doing at broadcast. And obviously, in broadcast TV, there's, there's more of a practical aesthetic reason why people wear makeup. But outside of it, it seems that historically, there's a stereotypical view that makeup is seen as being feminine. In recent years, though, the male makeup industry has sort of been growing day by day. It seems to be kind of an emerging industry. Why do you think it's taken men so long to catch up? I think I think it's a really interesting question. Hopefully we're moving forwards and, and it's just great to see anyone that wants to try it. I've never had any of the sports guys I've worked with have a problem with it. They're happy to wear it for production. They're, you know, they're also quite happy to take it off, but that's, <laughs> that's absolutely <laughs> fine. But, you know, you've got artists I saw, like Sam Smith was attending an awards do last year and he had a really, like, fabulous smoky eye. And it just it just really suited him. And great, if you want to do it, do it. So hopefully as we move forwards, if, if it's something that guys feel like they want to do, that they can do it without judgment. Okay, so let's move on to uh, talking about editorial fashion shoots that you're involved in. You've worked on beauty and fashion editorials for publications such as Vogue and Glamour and Porter magazine. Tell me about your role on a photo shoot. Big publications like that, I've not been lucky enough to be the, the lead artist on, but I've I've assisted on, on jobs for them. So I would go with the artist and either meet them before or after, depending on what, what needs doing. If there's quite a few models, sometimes you might be expected to uh, prep skin and do like a basic sort of foundation 
accommodation but sometimes if it's if there's quite a lot riding on it for example perhaps or, or you've not worked with the lead artists before and they don't know your standards they just might feel more comfortable doing everything themselves so your job might be just to keep the station clean uh, keep everything organized keep keep an eye on what's going on on set um, because if there's multiple models you know someone might be in the chair having their makeup done but someone's already being being shot so you need to have, they need to have somebody on set on site able to brush brows up or you know add body lotion as clothes go on or off depending on what it is just to keep everything looking as crisp as it did when they were finished so it can vary in an assisting capacity it's, it's kind of whatever the lead artist or artists sort of need from you then you have to just be able to kind of adapt to whatever they whatever's required how much creative freedom does a lead artist have on the day if it's sort of like a beauty editor they've got a lot of creative freedom and a lot of work goes into it it's not sort of decided on the day I worked on something recently it was sponsored by a big brand so they kind of want their products used and so the lead artist will come up with some looks based on what model she's got and what she thinks is going to work best and I think they've got a lot of creative freedom and it's kind of a collaboration between them and the hairstylist and the photographer and, and sometimes they might try something they might sort of put a big red lip on and they'll shoot her and they'll think actually this isn't working and you'll go back and change it so that sort of collaborative process is really important and it can change at any point in the day where I am starting off is I'm trying to build up my portfolio so I'm doing quite a lot of what's called test shoots so you work with a, a team and you come up with a concept together you've got real creative freedom and that's fantastic because you you want to be respectful because sometimes if it's going to be all about the hair, they don't they don't necessarily want a, a mega makeup look with a mega hair hair look if that just might not be the aesthetic the photographer's going for. So you might have to sort of bow down a little bit and kind of adapt to, you know, a compromise. It, it is a collaboration and you, you do have to sort of work together to, to get that killer image. So is that one of the key lessons? You do big hair or big makeup, but not both? Or do you sometimes <laughs> no, get to do no, both? No, not at all. I think that's um, that's maybe sort of like a sort of more outdated approach to makeup. I think back okay. in the day, I had like a I had a book growing up. It was like how to do your hair and makeup that my mum gave to me when I was quite young, and it was that was very much like an old school sort of way of thinking. Like if you do an eye, you shouldn't do a lip, and and vice versa. But nowadays, I think I think anything goes. But it but it depends what it is. If you're shooting for a brand, they might not want that. That's not the look they're going for. They want something cleaner. So you kind of have to work with the client and what their needs are. It depends what you want to get, what you want the result to be. You need to you need to decide and then work back from that. It sounds like you have to be pretty adaptable on the day. Definitely. And sometimes you'll have an idea in your head. And um, I had this happen recently. I had an idea in my head and the model sat down in front of me and she just, her face was just amazing. And I had just a completely different idea. A lot of the inspiration will just come from the face that's in front of you. You don't necessarily always have to stick to the plan. You can kind of be like, okay, I didn't realise her eyes were quite that colour or the shape was quite this much and we can we can change it and we can do something really great here. It must be really satisfying when you get those moments of creative freedom just to go, you know, you feel the light bulb come on over your yeah. head and you go, do you know what? We're going to do it completely differently just to experiment with that. It's lovely. It's really, really lovely. And it's, it's it can be equally frustrating, especially like I'm, I get quite frustrated if, I, if I'm if i like, okay, how am I going to, we know we've got to get six different beauty looks out of this. How am I going to start and how am I going to finish and how do I, what story do I want to tell? You know, you don't just want to whack things on just to use it for the sake of it. You do want to tell a story. So sometimes I find that quite tricky, what my starting off point is going to be and how I'm going to visualise it getting to the end. My friend Chris, who's a hairstylist, he said to me once, he said, just trust your hands. And I think that was really lovely advice. And don't ever think anything and just just go with it and see what you come up with. You can always change it. It's just makeup. You can take it off. I love that. Just trust your hands. Often. 
Often, if you have a creative mind, then you can get paralysis by analysis. <laughs> you end up just overthinking it, and you end up just thinking, oh, maybe we could do this, or we could do this. And it's true, there's infinite possibilities of how you could do things, but sometimes the greatest strength is just to go, this is how we're going to do things, totally. and just trust, trust your judgment. judgment. Just trust your gut and go with it. I, I sort of tend to get myself in a bit of a, I'll get a bit um, stroppy, and I'll be like, uh, we were shooting something once, and I was like, I hate it. I hate what I've done. It's, it looks awful. Why have I why have I done that on her face? <laughs> the photographer's like, it's fine. You need to calm down. I was like, okay, okay, just take a step back. <laughs> but I think sometimes being being critical of your work is a good thing. I think it, it helps you sort of realise what you don't want to do again and how you would change it in the future. There's no point sort of saying everything you do is great because it's not, and you're not going to learn anything if you if you if you're not aware of what your mistakes are so going from creating six different looks in a day to uh creating just one perfect look let's talk about bridal Mm -hmm. um another big part of your work is bridal hair and makeup now the wedding industry in the uk is worth about 10 billion pounds i was researching a little little pot a little bit of money in this in this country and that's just in the uk as well i mean how do you establish yourself in such a competitive sector i'm lucky because i don't solely look to seek my income from bridal and I think if you do it is it is a struggle you have to go to wedding shows and set up one of those desks and posters and kind of just get to know brides and build it up slowly but um you know I've always wanted to because I started later in my career as a makeup artist I wanted to try all sorts of different avenues to see what fitted for me and learn different things from them 90% of the weddings I've done I would say come from recommendations from friends of friends or you know I had an email the other day oh I was a bridesmaid at so-and-so's wedding last year and I love my makeup and I'm getting married next year and I think that tells you kind of everything you need to know people want to feel comfortable and they they want to feel familiar so I think that's a big part of building a sort of bridal brand image is creating an online identity that people feel that they can trust and feel comfortable with what how, how a girl looks on her wedding day or how anyone looks on their wedding days is a big thing to be able to choose an artist that they think is going to understand what they want and be able to tell them yes or no if it's not working I think that's one of the key one of the key aspects absolutely it's another role where you're actually you've got a really intimate viewpoint on a hugely important day in somebody's life what is that process for translating a bride's vision into their makeup and hair on the big day? Yeah, I mean, it's. I really like to get to know the bride. I really like to have a chat with them um, before and, and find out about, you know, what the venue's like and what the dress looks like and and see if they can show me some pictures where they've, you know, where they've really liked how they've looked previously just to get an idea because a bride might show up for a trial you've not met before. She's She's got a clean a clean face, so you've got no real idea what she thinks is is her sort of style she knows but you don't know so it's good to get that sort of visual reference so that you can build from that I think it's really really good to to start with a clear sort of line of communication where you tell them we'll do it but when it's finished if there's anything that you're not happy with we can tweak you know you you want to let them know that that trial is a trial where we're here to look at different different elements and different styles until we get it until we get it exactly right so what we're going to do, we're going to celebrate all of these different environments in which you work in the fourth room. But if you had to pick one, where do you feel most at home? Um, oh my gosh. Um, I think from a sort of outside actually applying and doing the makeup, I, I love working in the sort of sport broadcast. I, the people, are, they've been doing it for years. They're, they're always so much fun and you get to, I think you get to know them, you work with them regularly. So they do become a, a real sort of like, you like your colleagues or, you know, the things that you don't always have as a freelancer, that it really gives you the opportunities to, to build a really lovely network of friends. And I always feel so comfortable around them. But for the work, being on a job or on a test shoot as I've done recently where you get to come up with the look and and create it and 
change it or adapt it or whatever it is that goes through the day and then seeing the final photo um there's uh, just absolutely the greatest feeling getting that picture back when you're when you're proud of it and being able to share it and say oh, i did this because i know how i feel when i look at other artists on instagram i think oh my gosh that's such a beautiful beautiful makeup and i sit and i try and think about maybe how they've constructed an eye shape or whatever and i'd uh, you know it'd be lovely if someone was looking at my pictures and thinking oh that's such a, a great image and you've done it as a team and yeah there's no real rush like that and just the creative freedom is just such a lovely lovely thing to, to have well you have done work which has appeared on the covers of uh, numerous magazines as well so you never know there could be someone out there i'm sure there is <laughs> He's hoping. okay we've come to the final room the gift shop so lauren <laughs> i'm going to give you a five rooms tote bag and in this bag you get to choose an object for the listeners to take away with them to remind them of their experience today what are you going to offer in the Five Rooms gift shop? The Five Rooms gift shop. I'd probably pick chocolate if I was in a gift shop. It's usually the thing I go straight to. They always have those like chocolate bars, don't they? With the, like, a picture of Henry VIII at Tudor Palace. Um, <laughs> got nothing to do with the other product. But aside from chocolate, they, um, I think like a box, I think a box of crayons or pens or something that you can go, go away and just get a piece of paper or, you know, if it's lipsticks, you know, a box of anything that you can, you can mark with and just, just start, just start scribbling something down and just see what happens because it, it just makes you feel so good. And sometimes it will come to nothing and sometimes you think it's rubbish and, but that's kind of part of the joy of it is screwing it up and starting again and making it better. And I just think, it's such a lovely thing to do if you have some some free time. So, so, so some sort of creative pencil or pens or crayons or anything and just encourage people to just go and have a play. Well, that's great. Do you know what? I'm, I'm feeling very generous today. I'm going to slip in a small bar of chocolate in there. <laughs> a small Five Rooms branded bar of chocolate. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. So uh, finally, where can people go to see more of your work? Um, so I have a website, which is laurenmccormackmakeup.com, and that's sort of editorially fashion stuff. But I put a lot on Instagram of, of things like even sort of like just behind the scenes, just sort of like mess I've made or just products that I've used or other things from sets that I might like. Sometimes if you're on a location and you see something really nice, you might just pop it on your stories. So main, mainly my, my Instagram page is what I use, but I also have a separate bridal bridal page and website which is bridal beauty by lauren and um that's got all sort of weddings i've done and stuff on it as well so it's a different aesthetic but yes yeah, more of my bridal work brilliant well we'll put lots of notes in the show notes for this episode and up on the blog so lauren mccormack thank you so much for your time today and for taking us through your five rooms thank you so much for having me ollie Thanks again to Lauren for speaking to me. Next episode will be episode 10, which will be the last in this current series. It's been a real pleasure to have you listening so far, and I hope you can tune in for the final episode of this series of Five Rooms. This is Oliver Card. Take care.